Hi, this is Calico from MissCalico.com, and the podcast you're listening to is for adults only. We do this out of the kindness of our hearts and the emptiness of our wallets, so if you like what you hear, and you will, please support Axe and the Massacast by going to Massacast.com and clicking donate. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm actually cleaning the tub while I do this. I figure it's a, a good way to uh, combine uh, tasks. You can scrub a, a tub while you uh, while you do the podcast intro. No problem, right? Uh, and also this makes it so that I can do more throughout my, uh, my Sunday here. I'm not that perverted. So, um, thanks to uh, you who donated in the month of October. Uh, two people did. And it's really appreciated. It's uh, I really, really, it really means a lot when you do that. So, I'm actually going to be doing another big round of interviews here um, in another couple weeks. So, if you or someone you know uh, would be really good on the podcast, uh, shoot me an email, massacast at gmail.com, and we'll set something up. You don't have to have been in New York. We can do this over over the internet. You can do it over Skype. I just ask that they have a decent microphone, and uh, yeah, it works pretty well. So massacast at gmail.com if you'd like to be interviewed, or know someone who'd like to be interviewed, or if you have an idea for someone. Uh, I've said this in the past, if I if you don't know the person, you know, that you're, you're suggesting to be interviewed, uh, it's difficult, because it's, you, you, know, you know how easy it is to come up like a creep, to uh, email someone randomly and say, hi, oh, yes, I'd like you to, be on my podcast. It just comes off weird. So if you know the person, you know, drop them a line first. Say, hey, here's a podcast I enjoy. I think you'd be really good on it. Also, if you have any suggestions on how to improve the show, I'd also uh, love to hear those as well. Uh, this episode, uh, Jeff Mack from uh, the Geeky Kink event, which is coming up in uh, just a couple weeks in November. We were at Test Fest and someone said, you got to interview this guy. And I'm so glad I did. He was so fun to talk to. He's one of these people who you're talking to, and it feels like he's thought of everything. He, he's thought of all the, I should be scrubbing right now. Uh, it sounds like he's, uh, you know, he's thought of all the answers. Um, I'm sure he'd disagree with that, but that was just the feeling I got when talking to the guy. So here it is, Jeff Mack from the Geeky Kink event. You, uh, your name is Jeff? Jeff Mack, yes. You are. Uh, what is your What is your title in the the Geeky Kink event? I am the chief playground builder of Jeff Mack events. The chief playground builder. That is my official title. So let's talk about uh, the Geeky Kink event a little bit. We'll talk a little, a little bit more about it later. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I've had friends who have gone swear by it. It's more of the. It's sort of like the science look at at kink. Is that what sort of? Uh... I don't think I'd actually call it that. I think that. Among the various kinds of geek interests we, I guess he can say, serve or service, um, science is certainly one of them, but it's much less about any one type of geekery and much more about an entire culture of geekery and a philosophy of blending geek and kink. There are a lot of people, myself included, my wife included, who are, you know, are, are nerdier than the average person. Play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, maybe or do programming. I, your shirt, people can't see your shirt, but your shirt refers to programming. And uh, but there, it, why do you think that is? Why do you think there are so many people 
in the kink scene who are also a little on the nerdier side or maybe more on the on the science side, I guess you could say. That is such a fantastic question. And we've talked about that one pretty much forever um, among the GKA circles. There's There are some people who feel that general geekery as an outlier, as a, an aspect of something that's not well accepted in the mainstream even now, tends to connect well with other kinds of outlying interests, whether that's because there's social pressure that pushes people together or makes people feel kinship, or whether there's some other factor that geekery and renaissance fairs and kink, for example, all seem to intertwine quite a lot, as well as, say, steampunk, if you don't see that as a subset of geekery, or if you see it as a thing on its own. Um, Even goth, other interesting subcultures, some people feel that kink can be a tremendous, if not necessarily an intellectualization, certainly a way of delving really deeply into how you might look at various drives, urges, including but not limited to sexual ones, and that people who really love to do such a thing, people who really love to find depth in a subject, who really love to immerse themselves into a subject beyond what is ordinary for many people, do tend to be geeks. So it could be that, or it could be some other magic factor that we've not yet isolated. I don't know exactly why it is. All I know is that when I was much younger, I was always told that being a geek would certainly prevent me from finding any sort of partner or indeed any sort of sexual outlet other than myself. And I can say positively that we have completely disproven that hypothesis. <laughs> Someone told me that uh, being kinky is to sex as Dungeons and Dragons is to Hungry Hungry Hippos. That one requires a lot of uh, thought, planning, and cooperation with other people. And uh, another is just basically doing a repetitive motion over and over again. That that's that's how they 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 well, how they consider kink being something that requires a little more thought than than just going out and fucking. Which not to say there's anything wrong with just going out and fucking, but uh, that, that there's something that's like you said a little deeper that that drives. Um, so so the, the the geeky kink event uh, is actually and I, I know this is not something you want to brag about. It's it's the largest in attendance. Is that how you 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 measure it? Or on the East Coast, yes, it's the largest. In, and how many people do you usually get? Last year we were at fourteen hundred. That's huge. Yes. Is it at one hotel? Or is that a group? Of- this hotel. This hotel. This, this very, very the one hotel. we're at. I didn't even know that. And then, uh, how do you get fourteen hundred people in this hotel? We use every single piece of available space. We spend forever thinking and planning about how we can use every inch of space at every possible time how we can make as many separate pieces of the event as possible, be as enticing as possible, so that we can get people to flow all through the event. Because if we ever had a time when, say, we really didn't have our A game going for our programming, our workshops, the dungeon would get way too crowded. If we ever had a situation where we really let the dungeon fall into disuse, if we didn't focus on having a great dungeon, then we'd probably have everyone at the workshops and have an empty dungeon. In either of those cases, we would have we'd have a terrible imbalance right. of people. We use the pool. We use the pool pretty much nonstop for pool parties, adventures, activities, um, 
And we've worked with this hotel for a long time. I've worked with the manager at this hotel since 2001. They put in a covered area by the swimming pool, partly so that we could have more events outside, even in ill weather. Well, one thing that surprised me, in fact, Saad and I were talking about this quite a bit during the during the test event, uh, is that the management here, like, do they have? They must have to have to go. Th- they have to go through some sort of talk amongst their employees. Of, hey, listen, if you're not comfortable seeing people walking around with part part of their clothes clothing off, or you have to be comfortable with some sort of nudity or maybe something that you might consider odd, yet they're very courteous. They're very friendly and professional. Do you know what goes on behind the scenes there? How they, they, some sort of training that they go through with their staff? How do they, how do they address that? There is a tremendous amount of transparency that happens. There's a tremendous amount of transparency between the upper level staff and even the uh, even the staff who are, I guess, at the technical bottom of the totem pole, there's a lot of transparency about what's going to happen at this hotel, what can happen at this hotel. And this hotel is really serious when it says they really respect their guests and they really prioritize their guests. They want their guests to have really great experiences, and they feel that way. I've seen them do that for kink events. I've seen them do it for steampunk events. I've run geek events here. I've run all kinds of events here. I've seen all kinds of events here. And there's also a certain amount of evolution. The staff, who I think are not as happy being in this particular hotel, tend to migrate to other hotels. And staff who are happy here tend to stay here for a very long period of time. I mean, this is a Carlson property. It's not, say, a Hyatt. It's not a property. It's not a high-end hotel in terms of the actual, I guess, if you're you're a hotel geek like I am, this is not really considered a high-end hotel chain. Right. It doesn't have a tremendous rate of retention in its other hotels around the country, but there's a tremendous rate of retention here exactly because the hotel really is unified in the idea that you need to have happy, well-trained staff to have happy attendees. Right. Attendees are going to feel it if you have staff who are just miserable, who are you know in bad places. And I think the whole hotel really pulls it together as a team to try to put on great events. And I really, really appreciate that about everyone here. Absolutely. Hold that thought one second. I have to turn the uh, thermostat so that the uh, AC doesn't crank on and blast noise during the interview here. There you go. Um, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to go. I do not mean to go on at such length. No, about, no, no, no. This is, this is, this is great. This you know, is great. The, the employees, the staff of this hotel are so kind to me personally. I mean, I've been coming here for a long, long time and, I know quite a lot of the members of staff by name, and, and they know me by name. And I guess I'm kind of biased because they're they're just so warm. And when I and when I see someone who's on the hotel staff at any level, whether it's the sales manager or whether it's someone who is in a traditionally lower job, like someone who is cleaning a room, when I see them go out of their way to do something exceptional for an attendee, I usually know that person by name. And I know who that staff member is. Right. And I kind of recognize that they've done it, and it makes it more personal for me, I guess. It's hard for me to feel like I I really I left I left my corporate job so that I could work with and for and around people that I loved. And I guess it's not as much about GKA, but I really love the staff of this hotel and I love having the opportunity to work in the King community. And I guess 
just bring out a lot of really happy feelings in me. I, again, I'm sorry to talk at such length. About no, not it. at all. That's great. It's a testament to uh, the staff and also your your uh, your joy in working with them. What? Uh, tell us about the genesis of the the Geeky King event. How did that come about? Well, speaking of the staff of this hotel, okay. In general, Jeff Mack Events looks to find unique events that will appeal to geeks of some sort. Events which haven't been done before. Events which will find a new niche. Will find some new area of creating, usually a festival. Most of our events are festivals. We don't run a lot of conventions. Creating some sort of festival to celebrate some sort of geekery that hasn't really been celebrated before. So I was at this hotel um, one afternoon, I guess late morning actually, looking around thinking about maybe doing sort of a steampunk picnic, if I recall correctly. And uh, Chef Ashraf, the head chef, saw me and he said, Mr. Mac, they only call me Mr. Mac. They won't call me Jeff. Mr. Mac, he said, you're here for lunch. And I said, no, I'm just here to look around. He's wonderful. Lunch will be at 1230. So I go into the restaurant at 1230 and there's this marvelous lunch in front of me. And I start eating lunch and the sales manager walks in and she says, Mr. Mac, have you considered running a naked people event here? And I said, I, I hadn't. She said, because, you know, I think this is a good venue for it, and we'd be very open to it, and I think it's a good opportunity. And so I'm thinking about this, and the general manager, Sonny, walks in, and Sonny says, Mr. Mac, when are you doing that Naked People event with us? <laughs> and I said, well, Sonny, I don't know. Uh, I hadn't checked my calendar. I hadn't spoken to anyone else on my team. And, and we start having this conversation, and Vinod, who owns the hotel comes in and he says, Mr. Mack, I hear you are doing a naked person event here. <laughs> and I said, well, I, and Vinod said, why one event? Why not do four? You could do one every season. Have you considered that? Wow. And so at that point I said, okay, it appears like I have a great venue to do a kink event. Right. What kind of kink event would I love? And what kind of kink event do I think has never been done before and would make people really happy? And, um, from a drunken conversation I had with Randall Monroe of XKCD several years ago oh. at a convention called PyCon in Western Mass, which is about to end, actually. And there's going to be a new convention called RoCon that I'm really excited for. But I had a drunken conversation with Randall Monroe, and um, I believe it was Mr. Monroe who mentioned that bull pits were a lot of fun if you were naked. And I said are you planning on doing anything with that idea or can I use that at some point in the future? <laughs> and this idea flashed into my head and I realized there'd never been a kink event with a ball pit. And obviously that was a tremendous dearth in the kink world that someone had of to fill. And the rest is, I guess, history. You got to wash them uh, every, every night. How do you do the, do you, what do you do if you have a, if you have a naked ball pit, you just go, you know what? Uh, we're going to keep it. We're just going to wash it in between, uh, Clean it in, in between events or our ball pit is not actually naked for that reason. We don't allow we don't actually allow a lot of sexual contact in the ball pit because ball pit balls are better when they're not um Yeah, ball pit balls are better when they're cleaner. Right. And, uh, and, I mean you could I suppose you could have a thing next to the ball pit where you're boiling you have a set of clean ball pits, and then in between, like every hour, you swap them out. But then you're constantly boiling balls. Well, it's, there's a much cooler solution to that, which is that if you're in a hotel, especially a hotel which recognizes there are going to be a lot of naked people in the swimming pool and therefore ups the 
Doubles the chlorine? Yes. Yeah. Ups the chlorine to some high but safe level. I don't know the exact pH involved. Right. Um, you have an event where you take all the ball pit balls and you throw them into the swimming pool and you leave them in the swimming pool for a while so that they're clean. Right. And, of course, the water is filtering in and out. And after you've done that for a while, not only do you have clean balls, but you can then have a ball pit pool party. Perfect. Yes. I never, you know, it's amazing how the directions that some of the conversations I have take. And this is a, this is another another joy, joyful one that I'm having now. How to clean your balls. Um, so tell us, tell me, I've heard from other people, but I'd love to hear from you. Just a few of the examples, uh, like, for for example, some of the uh, events uh, or the classes I've gone to here at Test Fest, some have been around hypnosis, some have been around uh, needle play, and some have been around puppy play, some have been around, I mean, just about everything you can imagine, there's there's something, but it's all, it all kind of hovers around specifically around aspects of kink, obviously. Um, uh, what are some of the, can you give us a, a, a sampler of some of the classes that someone might see at the Kinky Kink event? Absolutely. Well, we do try to have a blend of geek and kink, but we also try to have really high levels of presentation and workshop when we can. And speaking as a presenter myself, I can say that it's hard for a presenter to take something that they might not have done before and create something new. So we certainly have a reasonable number of relatively conventional kink classes and relatively conventional geek classes. You know, you will certainly find things like a rope track. You'll certainly find things like an impact play track. But say within the impact play track, you will, to go back to the science you talked about before, you will certainly have something like a science of impact where you can learn more about why impact works scientifically. And we do a lot to try to adapt things that work really well. Takedowns are really cool. Takedowns are really interesting. You know who else who does takedowns other than kinksters? Superheroes. Right. So um, we asked Lord Percy, who graciously created an entire workshop on superhero takedowns and how various superheroes would do takedowns, um, both as an example and also, hey, for a practical piece of advice, if you would like to have some Batman roleplay, here is how the Batman might take you down. Right, right. <laughs> and, um, and there's a lot of programming that just ends up being, when we feel that we're a festival more than a convention, we're about celebration, we're about joy, we are about education, but... In general, our bottom line is that we would like to take people to an altered state of consciousness where they are insanely happy. Right. So we also just end up with a lot of programming like, hey, we have um, a bunch of sound nerds and a bunch of light nerds, and we have a swimming pool, so we could have an awesome globby pool party, which we sort of threw together one year, and everyone fell in love with it. And now we start building on it every year, and our, our glowy pool party of awesome I believe the technical term, I think, is the awesome, glowy pool party of awesome. <laughs> um, gets more glowy and more awesome every year. You have to start building it long before the event starts now. Well, actually, we build everything long before oh, right, the event right. starts when possible. So um, how many days before the event starts do you show up at the, the hotel? Um, probably just um, between one and two. Usually oh, okay. I do... Usually I do a ton of work from my office, which is also my home, which right. is also my bedroom. Where, where do you where do you live? Do you mind if I ask? Lovely where? Hackensack, New Jersey. Hey, cool, great. Home of happiness and high electric bills. Right. <laughs> and so you do everything out of your home, planning this. But you have several events. What are the, some of the other events you do? Well, gosh, um, we start in February with our flagship event, the Wicked Winter Renaissance Fair, and that is. The world's largest indoor renaissance fair. Wow. Not that there's a ton of competition, really. Of course, right. And it's uh, the only renaissance fair run 
by the strange people who make Renaissance fairs run and happen for the strange people who love Renaissance fairs, not because Renaissance fairs are an interesting thing, just to quick aside, in that they, in that to make any large Renaissance fair, any hard site Renaissance fair run, you need to get a whole bunch of families, you need to get a whole bunch of tourists, you need to get a whole bunch of people, a lot of whom are there on kind of a see the freaks kind of thing. Like, hey, let's look at the funny dressed up people. Some of them mean it in a positive way. Hey, this is weird and outside our experience. Let's take it in. Some of them totally mean it in a, let's go and look at the freaks. Um, And the actual people who make that run, the so-called freaks, don't have a Renaissance fair of their own. So we decided to create one. And that's how Wicked Fair got started. And that's our flagship event. Um, It's been running for 10 years now, going to its 11th year. And what what, uh, time of year is it? That's in February. February, okay. Middle to late February. It's a perfect time for it. People can enjoy Ren Fair without having to go, you know, at a different time of year, right? Yes. And as people often, people used to ask us, is that an indoor event? We said, it is in New Jersey in February. It is indoors. (laughs) And then um, in May, we get to the Steampunk World's Fair, which is the world's largest steampunk festival. And um, a quarter of a million miles, quarter of a million um, square feet. Right. Not a quarter of a million miles. That would be huge. That would be, right? yeah. That'd be a lot of planning. You need a helicopter to. Well, uh, you know, as a as a cisgendered ish, male ish identified dominant ish figure, I like Christian Grey do require a helicopter. <laughs> and, and of course, my my dumbly honor is now terribly annoyed that you consider that I might not have a helicopter. I meant to to, to assume that you had more than one. <laughs> That's what I assume. <laughs> yeah. uh, it goes without saying. It's right. just massive. It's this tremendously massive array of ridiculousness. Right. And it gets more massive and more ridiculous every year. That's great. Then we run on into, oh gosh, what month is it now? We run on into August where we have the Geeky Kink event, New England, which is a Geeky Kink event that happens in New England. <laughs> and it, it, is there a difference other than location? Is, do, do you have uh, – is there a certain uh, – something you would do at the New England one that you wouldn't do here in Jersey? I'm not sure if there's necessarily something that we wouldn't do in one place versus another. But one thing that I love about the way we run events is that every event gets built separately. Mm-hmm. So every event is going to have its own unique flavor to it. Right. Um, it's kind of like if you're a chef and you don't have a chain, you – do all the cooking yourself. And most of the best chefs I know will go down to the market in the morning and see what vegetables are available and see what fruits are available. And they will cook from that. They won't just say, okay, my menu is going to be this, this, and this, and that's what I do for the next six months. Yeah. Uh, if they have the freedom and the time, the energy to do that. And so all of our events, all of our events are different from each other, even if they're the same concept, like GK New England. That is a really excellent question. Yeah. And then we have Voltaire's Necrocomicon. Do you know... Uh, the musician, artist, filmmaker, author, Voltaire. Not to be confused with the dead philosopher Voltaire. Right, no. I, I'm only familiar with the philosopher, unfortunately. Ah, well, the philosopher has written fewer catchy songs, I will tell you. <laughs> um, Voltaire is a really, really funny musician, and he's he does some great, great work. And we're partnering with him for an independent Comic-Con for people who love the dark, the unusual, the strange, and the macabre. And it's called Necrocomicon, Voltaire's Necrocomicon. And that is happening for the first time ever uh, in September, in this hotel, middle of September. Wow, you don't slow down. Uh, I'm surprised you have time for this interview. You know, um, 
I've always wanted to spend my life making things happen. And I guess I'm really happy just to have a lot of opportunities to do that. So now I'm curious about you, about you personally, about how you got started in kink, but also what made you decide to jump ship on your corporate life and go into, go into this. So let's start with uh, your, your, your explorations in kink and how you got started there. There I was a kid in college and um, kind of a late bloomer. I, I uh, was terribly socially awkward, like quite a lot of nerdy folk. And I was really unpopular in high school, like quite a lot of other folks. And I read, I, I happened to have started reading a little bit late, but when I started reading, I began reading at a high school level when I was in second or third grade. Oh, wow. Wow. And I, I don't know if there's such a thing as a reading prodigy, but I was something like that. The only practical applications being that I started writing at a really early age and I read a lot of young adult novels and young adult novels made it really clear, Hey, this is how high school tends to work socially. So yeah. I wasn't terribly surprised going in and said, ah, all the young adult novels I've read show that if you're weird and different, people are going to be afraid of you and or treat you badly in high school. Totally confirmed. Right. Totally works. Right. And I was like, I'm totally okay with this because I was terribly introverted. Right. And I'm like, I'm totally happy unless – and unless I see anything to change it, I'm going to stay this way. So I actually uh, developed my first crush and realized that from the position I was in both socially and in terms of my own actual ability to communicate with other people, I was going to have tremendous difficulties unless I learned to communicate with people in ways that – we're more compatible with how other people like to communicate. Um, it is it is asking a whole heck of a lot to say to someone, I am really difficult to communicate with, and you're a child and I'm a child. We're both, say, 12, but you should have the patience and time to learn how to communicate with me. Right. Although that's the lesson I was taught. You know, as a kid, I was always taught, well, if someone's a worthwhile person, they'll get to know you. But, you know, if you're 12, if you're 13, heck, if you're 40, if someone comes off as terribly off to you, it's going to be a rare person who says, I not only can, but should stop and try to learn about that person. Right. So I began learning how to be social and I overdid it tremendously because I realized, I didn't realize in high school that you could, that things were stratified. If you were in high school with the same people you've known for the past 10 years, they wouldn't see you change socially very much. So right. I, I had a good, I had a good high school situation. I got to college and realized that I had, um, there's really no modest way of saying it to my tremendous surprise. Uh, I had become incredibly charismatic right um i developed this tremendous friend group that's great and it, yes it, it was fantastic and surprising and and i um and i had sort of a high school romance that had never gone very far and happened not to have gone very far sexually and i got to college and i'm and that relationship ended when i was 21 and all of a sudden i'm like gosh i could lose my virginity i could have sex and i could try things and i could be in an open relationship and i got into an open relationship with a wonderful person um, with whom I do not currently have a relationship, but that person's actually here at this event. Um, and I found another person and we started playing around and I'd never really done kink before. Right. And this person's like, you can hit me. It's okay. And the person just had so much joy in being struck that I immediately picked up that joy. Right. And I'm like, this is so amazing. So I'm hitting <laughs> you and it's, it, this is good. And Everything just sort of clicked into place from that moment. Did you have any, is it because this person turned you on to it? Or did you have any thoughts about 
doing anything kink-wise before that? Oh, heck, I'd had thoughts about it since I was 13, and I found the proto-internet. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Bulletin board systems back in the It's so, so hard to avoid in those uh, early bulletin board <laughs> systems, right? Yes, it was. Right. No, I, I totally was interested, and I thought it was a cool idea, but I really had no clue how anything sexual and or kinky worked until I was 21. Right. Um, so, so you have a relationship uh, uh, with this person, and you realize that you can explore these kinky desires, and where does it go from there? <laughs> well, uh, because I'm ridiculous, it goes into helping co-found the Rutgers BDSM organization, which was started by a friend of mine named Caddy, who brought me on board uh, to be the vice president, uh, along with the Rutgers Rocky Horror Picture Show Club and the Rutgers Pagan Students Association. Um, That's a hell of a combination. You're definitely, (laughs) when you have the Pagan Students Organization and the Kink Club, they're going to start connecting the dots. They're going to start thinking, oh, wow, these, these pagans are also in all, you know, Everything we think of these people is true. Don't right? tell anybody. Right, right. But it, it, did you find? Well, I've heard. I know a, a few people who have had uh, kinky college organizations. They've managed it, and some people get really. You know, they get a lot of support from the the, the college. The university says, you know, this is your thing. We support you and what you do. And others get a lot of blowback. They get a lot of negative press. Um, a friend of mine ran. Uh, ran one at uh, Iowa State and would always get, you know, in the paper about, you know, all these evil things that they would do. It's almost like the newspaper was out to get, you know, out to get them. And uh, what was the, what type of relationship did you have with the university? Were they supportive? Were they? They were cautious. I think the university wasn't happy, but I had already sued them once over the Rock, over the Rutgers Rocky Horror Picture Show Club. How do you sue? Okay. I don't know if you can even talk about this, but. Sure, I can. How, how. What what do you sue over? What was the conflict there? Um, I was supposed to show the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this was actually before we were a student organization. I, uh, as an incredibly naive, fledgling, <laughs> terribly foolish young business person, I uh, rented a 16-millimeter film of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I had a contract to show it in one of the student centers. And about a week before, they told me that I could not do it. Um, that it was too dangerous. It was too dangerous. What was the danger? There were there were silly bits of politics between various deans. One dean was basically trying to say that, oh, look at how out of control this other dean is. This other dean allows this to happen in his student center. But the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I saw the memo, um, involves throwing raw chicken parts and cans filled with food right. and just this ridiculousness. So it was less about the the... The movie itself or the activities, it's more of a politics thing of one trying to do it. Exactly. Right. And, you know, they were they were college deans. And they figured, well, we'll just tell the student organization no. And they said no. And I said, no, not no. Right, right. I have a contract. And we sued them and they settled. Um, and after that, Rutgers and I walked sort of a careful walk around each other whenever it came to whatever sort of weirdness there was. I had no idea, um, as a side note... The way I became one of the people who helped found the Rutgers Pagan Students Association, I was not one of the founders. I was not one of the originators. I'm one of the people who facilitated it, though. Um, it happened. I helped found it in this way. I'm going to the Cook College. It's one of the colleges at Rutgers. The Cook College Campus Center. And the door swings open, nearly smacking me in the face. And this angry woman comes out. And she 
really angry and takes her second to realize that there's a person she almost killed. And she looks at me, she's like, ah, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. You just have no idea. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to get this college to accept a weird student organization? And I said, <laughs> actually, as a matter of fact, yes. Like, what kind of weird student organization are you trying to start? She's like, the Rutgers Pagan Students Association. I'm like, I can totally help with that. What's a pagan? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. And so, and so, did you identify as a pagan, or you were just helping them out? I had no idea what pagans were at that right. point. Probably the first time I'd heard the term used in anything outside of fantasy novels. Right. Um, and so you 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 helped them out. And so was the the kink club after all that, or what order did it come in? I think the kink club was in the middle. I think it was the Rocky Horror Picture Show club first, the right. kink club second, the Pagan Students Association third. As as things happen, they yeah. usually go in that order, right? Um, so the the university let it happen. They weren't going to shut you down because they knew who, who they were dealing with. They don't want to mess with this person. And uh, after college, did you uh, were, what, were you involved in other organizations? Did you did you go to other events, or what was your involvement? You know, I spent some, I was not a very good student. I didn't really have a good work ethic back then. And I, I really missed one of the problems I had with reading so quickly was that I had difficulties with the school system because the messages I got were so inconsistent. One year they'd say, okay, you clearly shouldn't be reading any of these books. We're going to have you read this high school book. Right. The next year they'd say, well, the people last year shouldn't have done that. We're going to have you go back and read the books that you read last year. Ugh. And and it made me not respect the educational system very much. And honestly, I think maybe I was a kid and I was just looking for an excuse not to do a lot of work. Sure. And it wasn't until after college when I sort of realized that I had wasted a lot of time in my mind that I actually developed this rather insane work ethic that I have now and started just building things at a rapid rate. I picked up a corporate job in 1999, uh, about a year and a half after I got out of college, and I was in corporate marketing. And I was enjoying it, but I also felt like I had no connection with the weird people who made life worth living. And so I decided I would try to run an event for them. And that's how it all began. And this whole time you're involved in the kink community? Huh. You know, I was a little bit involved. Yeah. I, it was mostly I'd personal. Sometimes life. go to test. It was mostly personal yeah. life back then. And um, uh, so this is before. I mean, this is before the internet became as big as it is now. There was no Fet Life back then. There was no. Um, were you still on the message board? And this is more of a nerd. Just this uh, is outside of my my kink interest. This is just out of curiosity of those early. I mean, I remember going into message boards and, and just. There's so much there, but there's only one, you know, there was only like one type of person there. There were other people like me, right? Uh, it was very, th there weren't any outsiders. You could tell when someone who did not understand the world would get in. And uh, and I remember very vividly showing someone like, how cool is this? And my friend's like, this is the, why would, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is that, this isn't real life. You know, this isn't what, what are you doing? Um were you still involved in message boards and Oh sure. I was yeah. I was on alt sex bondage at the of time. Course. And I mean I I 
there was a dungeon near me in New Jersey, and I went there and um, underwent a sort of complicated mentorship where I learned some good lessons and maybe some not-so-good lessons. And uh, I visited Conversio Virium, um, which is the Columbia BDSM organization, which right. had inspired the Rutgers one. And I did go to tests sometimes, and I went to Not For Everyone. But yes, mostly it was limited to my own personal life and right. my trying to get a handle on my personal life as someone who owned a business. And right. I was not very good at that for a long time, really. How so? Well, have you heard of work-life balance? Right, right. <laughs> because yes. I hadn't. Right, right. And so that was that was that was the difficult part of it. Yeah. Um, I've been a workaholic since I was twenty-three or twenty-four or so, and finding the rest of my life within those parameters took a long time. It probably took. I ran a web design company for several years and did events as a sideline. The events certainly weren't anything that could sustain um, that could sustain me. They were losing money for a long time. It took a long time for me to sort of merge the parts of my life together and start running events full-time right. and start realizing and start being in a place where I was really so fulfilled creatively and emotionally. And in terms of my reaching out to other people in the community and having other people reach out to me that I could actually figure out how I really wanted to live my life, how as someone who really wants to spend his entire life building things, how I could do that and have that jibe with my life as opposed to being in opposition to it. And how, how does your, because obviously, are you with someone now? Are you in a relationship now? I sure hope so. I mean, unless my husband has broken up with me lately. Do you know something I don't know? Um, I'm, and, and so how, how, you obviously must be with someone, or, or I should say, the person you're with has to either enjoy those things as much or, or appreciate your appreciation for them. My husband is an extremely driven individual himself. Right. Uh, we've been together for 10 years now. We got married three years ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, in this hotel, as a matter of oh, fact. Oh, wow. It was a great event. You really um, do love this hotel. I do. Right. Uh, and we sold quite a lot of tickets to it. You sold yeah. tickets to your own wedding? Absolutely. And so uh, were there, how do you decide which ones to comp? Well, Family? Is that about it? Or... I wasn't going to come, so, you know. To but to take it out of um, your your wedding was an event, literally an event. Well, to to take it out of context, that's because I like to joke about it. But even back then, this is some three years ago. I was some odd combination of public and private figure. Not necessarily because of anything so cool about me, but because there aren't a lot of people who run a lot of large events for unusual people. Right. And that is kind of their day job. And I'm incredibly hands-on. So anyone who, if you go to say Chiller Theater, you might know Kevin who runs it. You might run into Kevin, but you're not likely to see Kevin running around the event, talking to people. Kevin sort of hangs out, does his Kevin thing. Right. And that's cool. If you go to any Jeff Mack event, you will, unless I'm deathly ill or something, um, see me running around through the entire event not necessarily frantically, not necessarily stressed, just I will be everywhere at the event. Yeah. I will meet as many people as I can. I will, and now people introduce their friends to me. It's really cool. I will look at as much as I can. I'll try to see how everything's going. I'll try to find out what I can change. I'll take notes on everything I can. So I meet a lot of people. And when it came, and when it came time for me to have, you know, to get married, I was really completely unsure how to put a guest list together because I know so many people in so many complicated ways and um, 
Wicked Fair has about an attendance of 3,000 people. And wow. I would say that I probably know about 1,500 of those people by name and face. Wow. Wow. And that's, you know, these folks are coming and participating in the thing that gives my life meaning and that I really hope sincerely will add something really great to their lives. So I'm really honored to know these folks, you know, I'm honored to run into them at other events. I'm honored to run them at my events. So yeah, I had no idea how to actually do it. And so what I said was, look, no one needs to go to my wedding. No one needs to buy a present. No one needs to do that. I'm going to have the wedding. We don't have a lot of money. So we'll have tickets that just pretty much cover the cost of catering. Right. And we'll make it a benefit event so that the catering cost will actually go towards this other. There was another organization that was trying to run a school for a, a summer program for gifted kids. And they were supposed to run in the same hotel at the same time so that the money from the catering could then power this other event, which right. ended up not happening. Right. But um, we didn't do it for money or for mercenary reasons. We really did it because I wasn't sure who to invite. And I wanted to create a simple way of letting people choose and not feel guilty if they couldn't go. That's great. That's it. That's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. What is Kevin uh, a geek as well? Would you consider, or would Kevin consider himself a geek? I don't know. You know, when I say that Kevin does his Kevin thing, I say that as someone who knows Kevin kind of from afar. We're not, I know him by his first name, but we're not close. I don't really know what, I don't really, most folks who run events, we don't run into each other that often, really. Right. Um, there are not a lot of people who kind of run for-profit events for unusual people, and they create unusual events for a living. Right. Um, so when you, when you have, but, but at the same time, having an unusual event means you have this niche, right? That you're not competing with a whole bunch of other things like it, right? There aren't too many other steampunk events that you have to compete with. But the kink well, there event. Are. There are. There are really? Oh, yes. There are lots of steampunk events. And in fact. But at that, that scale? No, none at that scale, certainly. Right. But, but you really only would have to compete with anything else that was as the same size, right? Everyone has to sort of plan their schedule around yours, No. All right. So steampunk in particular, there is a challenge in running festivals wherein there's a real temptation on people's parts to say, let me get the best or the best known entertainment in a given industry. Right. Let me get all those people together and let me put them in one place and it'll cost me a lot of money, but I'll sell a lot of tickets. What do you do if you don't sell a lot of tickets? Right. Well, you get a dash con, for example, um, or you get an alt fest in England you get, or you get a Greater New England Steampunk exhibition. Right. I wouldn't ordinarily mention someone by name, but Greater New England made some very public mistakes, and I don't mind calling them out for it. You will get every year, pretty much, will find someone who runs a who tries to run a large scale steampunk event. Some people are incredibly good at it, run wonderful events, do it really intelligently. Um, I really admire them. Like say, Steampunk Unlimited in Strasbourg. What they do is amazing. I really admire them. Um, but no, we end up with competition every single year from somebody who's like, that looks easy. I'll run a steampunk event. Right. <laughs> How do you explain steampunk to someone who, without photos and, and images? I mean, what, is there, how do you explain that to someone? If you give me $70, I'll show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, steampunk, oh, lots of people have their own definitions of steampunk. And mine is that steampunk is a ridiculous Victorian flavor, which you can add to just about anything to create something new and amazing. Right. Well, that's, that's perfect. You've thought of that. You've thought of that before. 
And for your kink event, because you have other kink events, for Kinky and Geeky, do you look at a calendar and say, okay, what else is everyone else doing at this time? We might have to move something here because you don't want to conflict with someone else. Because if someone else moves moves their calendar that's closer to yours, is there a, is there a special timing formula you go by? Or do you just pick a date and that's when it's going to be? And if anyone else is putting their event on, to hell with it, whatever. We try very hard when we pick a date to conflict with as few things as possible. And because some of our events are multi-genre, sometimes that's difficult. It's hard to run an event in a certain season without conflicting with at least one Renaissance fair, because Renaissance fairs have such a long season. Yeah. But that's really major for some people who work Renaissance fairs or who go to Renaissance fairs every weekend. We try to find a date that is in conflict with as few things as possible and with as few things that are similar and or local as possible. And if possible, we try not to conflict with anybody. And then we hold that date. We try to stay on that date because once we found a date, unless we've made a mistake and we're like, whoops, we should move it because we're opposite this other thing. We kind of like to be, okay, this is where we are. We'll try to make as many people as possible aware of when we are. So hopefully they won't schedule at the same time. Yeah, It's really amazing. Is uh, I've interviewed quite a few people for the podcast after whatever, 150 some episodes. And a lot of people... Um, when we talk about their first kink experiences, we'll mention an experience at a Ren Fair. And Absolutely. they're like, oh, my first orgy was at a Renaissance Fair. I'm like, holy, <laughs> what? This is not, I, I've I've been to one Renaissance Fair. I mean, it's just, you know, nothing else. It's just not my thing. But what surprises me is how many people will say that their first sexual experience was at a Renaissance Fair, you know, behind the scenes or whatever. You know, they're, they're in the fair. And so, I mean, is it really that sexually charged? Is that all the bodices? What is it that does it for all these people? I don't know that it's necessarily that sexually charged as much as it is simply charged. Right. And I think you'll find that, I mean, my first influence, my first experience with altered states of reality was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the first Rocky Horror Picture Show I went to wasn't actually a very good show. It had just lost its cast. It didn't have a lot of people, but it was at midnight. And the dozen people that were in that theater were a dozen people who were in a weird place doing a weird thing, unlike what other people were doing at yeah. midnight on that particular Friday. Renaissance fairs, Renaissance fairs are powered by all these unusual people who've chosen to put a large part of their lives, whether they work a day job and then spend another 20 hours a week working on something for the fair, or whether yeah. they've gone out and they've made a huge risk and their livelihood is a Renaissance fair, whatever it is they do. Those people have all gone way beyond what normal society is expecting them to do, what normal society is interested in them doing. And so once the lights go down, the patrons go away, the people who are left are all some kind of kindred. And when you have kindred spirits, if you have outliers, you have kindred spirits together in one place that is relatively safe for them, then they're going to have all kinds of energy. They're going to have tremendous sexual energy. They're going to hook up. They're going to have tremendous intellectual energy. They're going to create things. They're going to have tremendous joy, potentially, they're going to be really happy. That's a great point. For someone who is, well, uh, just side question. Sure. I do, so I, I have a day job, but I also do freelance web work on the side. Uh, you don't have the web design business anymore? I do not. You do not. Is it because of clients? Because I thought I would love my job if, if I didn't need clients. It was, in fact, it was half and half. Halfway, the events started becoming something that could sustain right. us. And half of it was indeed client situations. I super quick as a web as someone running a web design company in say the year 2000 to say 2006 or 7 you had this thing where people were gradually starting to recognize the importance of the internet and the importance of the web yeah. but they had no real understanding of it and it's like that dilbert cartoon 
where the boss, where it talks about how if a, the boss doesn't understand a thing, the boss can assume it's easy. Right. You know, it's like build a worldwide network infrastructure for our data. Right. So suggested time, six minutes. <laughs> and yes. I don't know what it's like now. I do know that back then people were like, okay, so what I'd like is a website that looks, um, I'd like a website that has this three minute flash animation to begin yeah. and um, has the same has the same e-commerce architecture as eBay and is number one in Google rankings for everything. Yeah. And I'd like to pay you $250 for it. Yeah. Well, it's like that, except I, it, sliders. I always have to try to talk people out of sliders every week. I'm telling, no, stop it. No. Oh, but you, but uh, Netflix does. Yes. Well, if you had Netflix, you could, but this is not, you don't have Netflix. You're not doing, or I, or every now and again, I'll get someone says, Hey, listen, uh, I want to hire you to be in a startup. Uh, build Facebook, and I'll give you uh, I'll give you a share of it. Yeah, I'll just go build Facebook. Sure, yes. let me build Facebook for you. God, I got a lot of that. Yeah, no. So this happens all the time, and um, uh, like I said, I do it freelance. It's not my main bread and butter. It's you know, I just help pay the rent. And so uh, I- I'm thankfully at a point where I, uh, I don't have you know if I if I don't get a client, I can still eat because of the day job. But the you know, it pays for the kink toys, it pays for the podcast, and all this other stuff. So at the same time, I'm like, oh, I really enjoy doing this. If I just didn't have to have the clients or, you know, my kinky clients are actually the best clients because I've, you know, built sites for pro doms and stuff or whatever, or, you know, people who sell sex toys or something. Those are my best clients. My vanilla clients are the worst. They're just, it's just not, it's just not as good. And so I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, of a way, if I could just build websites for myself, that would be ideal. If I win the lottery, that's what I'd do. I just build websites for myself instead of someone's coming up to me and say, Hey, I'd like you to build Facebook. I have this great idea. Just build Facebook tomorrow, and make make it five hundred sliders on it too, if you could please. That would be. Um, so, if someone is out there today and they want to make their own kink event in their, you know, they're in Clear Pond, Iowa, or something, or you know, they're somewhere, uh, and they just want to make a little event for themselves, and it might turn into a big event. Maybe they have really big ideas. You thought, what's the first step? How do you start an event? What advice would you give them? In terms of practical advice. There are, there's a, there are a bunch of philosophical concerns, like there are things that I would prefer people think about, like, why do I want to do this? What am I looking to get out of it? What do I think it will offer to other people? But I certainly don't think it's my place to impose my ideas of what people ought to think about before they run an event. So just for pure practical purposes, first part is venue, venue, and venue. Mm. Find a venue that you can work with within a budget that is actually going to make sense, not in your optimistic dreams, but in your pessimistic Mm -hmm. dreams and find a venue that you're absolutely completely sure will understand what you're doing, recognizes it ahead of time, knows about it, is cool with it. And whatever other forces may be acting on that venue, be it corporate ownership, be it local statutes, be it someone be it their sister-in-law's partner who right. is in a law enforcement agency, whoever it is, make sure that they recognize what you're bringing them and they're completely good to go. And make sure you sign a contract. And people will give you different advice on this. For me, I think it is important to recognize, at least in some way, in the contract, the nature of the event. I usually do this simply by saying the contract 
is for an event that is referred to by this website, um, because it's a good shorthand for, well, look, I said referred to by this website. Here's the archive for what that website had at this particular date. You can't say you weren't aware of these things. Having the wrong venue, having a venue that you can't afford, having a venue where you're not actually sure what the cost will be, having a venue that might not be cool with you, having a venue, and I believe having a venue where you don't tell the venue everything, or at least you don't tell the venue enough to be really sure that when you show up and start doing things, the venue will be cool with it. Those are things you want to be really, really, really careful about. So venue, venue, venue seems like the big thing. How do you find, okay, look, let's say someone just wants to put their own kink event on because there's nothing in their vicinity. Is there some secret to finding a venue that's okay with that? I mean, do you, I mean, do you, you must have to come up and say, look, we're going to have people uh, doing fisting. What fisting is, and you know, the person behind the counter, they have no idea what these things, things are. They may not, they may Google it and go, holy crap. You know, uh, how do you be both frank with the person about all the different activities are going to be happening or are not going to be happening um, without having to come out and, you know, have a 10 hour long conversation about every sexual practice that might happen. That is a great question. It depends somewhat on what kind of, what you mean by kink event, like the sort of planning you might do to have a six hour kink event from say 8 PM to 4 AM on a particular evening in say a bar would be really different from what you'd want to do to find a hotel venue. Um, Since hotel venues are kind of harder, I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, If there is a kink organization anywhere near where you are, and hopefully if you're looking to put on an event of any size at all, there is at least some kind of kink organization because building that from the ground up seems to me like it would be very difficult. I would look around for referrals. And I also, for me at this point, I also call and I talk about it. I, I granted I can say, Hey, I do these other events, but even if I couldn't, if I were just starting fresh, but with the knowledge that I have, I would start calling hotels and I would say things like, look, I'm looking to bring you a piece of business. I think it'll be about this size. I think this is what we have to offer you. Here's what we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Are you interested in this piece of business? And if they say no, ask them for a referral. Um, Hotels really like having referrals. And if they can't use your business, know someone who can or might, it's only going to be a feather in their caps right. if they say, you can't work with us, but try the Holiday Inn of so-and-so place. Yeah. What are the what are the, the big mistakes you always see everyone make? That everyone see, everyone who's just starting out, or maybe you yourself, uh, have made it like, oh, man, I never, I should have thought about this. Of course, we have to have condoms or, you know, or something that there's always something that was so obvious, maybe not so obvious that you've learned the hard way or other people, it's just sort of like, it's almost an inside joke. Like, of course you need to have this. Is there something that comes to mind that is such a, a, a big mistake that everyone seems to make every time when they first start out? Change for your cash box. If you're doing tickets to the door, <laughs> that is actually, you'd be, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised how many people don't have that. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing a weekend long event, probably the biggest thing that people don't take into account is how much it costs for someone to attend a weekend long event. Uh, assuming you're not attending as say a volunteer, if you're going to an event, your tickets may be like $40 for the weekend. I don't advise that. That's really cheap, but right. that's too cheap. I think for you to be able to provide a good experience for a weekend, but um, you know, your tickets might be really cheap, but think about their cost of getting there. Think about their cost of food. Think about the fact they're going to want to buy stuff. Think about 
And think about, of course, the hotel stay, especially if you're, say, at a hotel where you have a guarantee of a certain number of rooms. And think to yourself, not, okay, I'm hoping to bring in 200 attendees at 100 apiece so that I'll make $2,000. Um, well, did I just completely miss the math there? <laughs> well, if you so, have 200 attendees at, uh, at $100 each, then you're, you've got uh, 20, right? 20,000. Sorry, right. did I say 2,000? Right. That's me being a pessimist That's about right, right. first-time yeah, events. You're, you're expecting the worst. But, yeah. you know, if you you have to say it's not just that. Um, it's not, will 200 people pay me $100? It's, will 200 people, uh, will, say, 150 people pay about $400 to do this for the weekend right. instead of paying $400 to be somewhere else that weekend? Right. And what about promotion? What are the things you do to promote uh websites just sending out a newsletter what is your or yes to all of the above what is your what is your is there a key it's like oh man this is the secret sauce that i always use for promoting and it really works well man i have to give away my secret sauce you don't have to you don't have to go to my restaurant have you thought of have you thought of uh making a book writing a book on this i have um i have considered it but this is one of those situations where I, as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, my God, I hope he hasn't already written a book <laughs> that I've, I completely didn't know about. I wrote a book, but it was about submission. Oh, really? Nothing about event planning. What was the book called? Um, I was 21. It's called uh, Give Some Explorations of Submission. And if I could go back in time, I would rename it because I meant it as as in a struggle. Like, we're struggling with someone and the person says, give. Right. Give in. Not because you're weaker, but because you want to give in to this. And I've shown myself worthy of being someone to whom you might give in. But many people read it and they're like, oh, give. It's about submission being about giving. And that's not what I intended at all. But hey, I was 21 and I was very silly. Is it still available? Can people buy it? It is available online for free at www.deadlychallenge.org. Deadlychallenge.org. We'll have a link to it on the on the episode there. But, but have you thought about writing a book for events? I have. But before I do that, I think I want to write another book about... DS from a more mature point of view. I think that's probably next in my stack. That's great. And you already probably have a, you know, you're going to think about the title a little bit more this time. I'm going to think about the title a little bit more this time. And it'll be written from a, yeah, it'll it'll be written, you know, kind of like a book written in 2015 and not like a book written in 1995. Right, right. This has been really great. I've been really enjoyed. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to cover? I am really good looking. (laughs) You and me both, my friend. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. It's been a real pleasure. There you have it. Uh, yes, I'm still scrubbing the tub. That's how long it... Yeah, I'm, I'm really thorough. Uh, thanks to Jeff uh, for sitting down with me. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Everything we talked about uh, in that conversation, you can find it on massacast.com. We'll see you later. And please donate. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.